You're listening to the feed. This is the feed. This is the feed. The feed. You're listening to the feed. In Markham. In Richmond Hill. You're listening to the feed in Vaughan. In Stouffville. In Woodbridge. In Unionville. This is the feed on 105.9 The Region. I'm Ann Romer with York Region's only news magazine show dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Coming up, we kick off the holiday season with a preview of Giving Tuesday. Also, travel trends as we look forward to 2021 and what snowbirds have planned this year. But we begin with a bestseller. For decades, Peter Mansbridge brought us stories of hope, courage, resilience, and the Canadian spirit every weeknight as the highly respected anchor of CBC's The National and chief correspondent for CBC News. Now he's bringing us stories of determination, bravery, dedication, and yes, the Canadian spirit, but in a different way, the written word. Extraordinary Canadians, stories from the heart of our nation. Peter Mansbridge joins us now on the feed. Good to have you with us. Hey, Anne, it's great to talk to you again. So you, Peter Mansbridge, are an extraordinary Canadian. Why did you decide to shine a light on other extraordinary Canadians? Well, you know, first of all, I, I don't think I'm that extraordinary. I'm just, I'm just a guy, which was kind of the answer I got when I phoned a lot of these people to talk to them after having kind of a sense of their story. I'd call them up and they'd say, no, 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 I'm not extraordinary, you know, I, I just do my thing, and I said, no, you know, from what I've heard, you're pretty extraordinary, I want to talk to you about it. So, um, I, you know, like, I, I don't really like talking about myself, I get a lot of pressure to write a memoir, and I'll probably will one day, but I'm not quite sure how I'm going to construct that, but I enjoy talking to other people, just like you do, Anne. There's there's a joy in interviewing others, and especially others who don't get that kind of normal publicity. I mean, most of the people I've interviewed in my career are, you know, famous for one reason or another. It could be politics, sports, entertainment, you name it. And those were always fun to do. But I found that the interviews I enjoyed the most were with people uh, who weren't generally well known. That in a sense, they're you know ordinary, but with extraordinary circumstances around them. And so that was the idea when Simon and Schuster came to me with the idea of a book. I said, okay, but I don't want to do the predictable ones. I want to do people that most Canadians have never heard of before, but who are pretty special, pretty extraordinary. And so that's how we started it. So the contributors, their stories are in their own voice, in their own words. What did you do to encourage and guide them? Well, both uh, my co-author, Mark Bulgich, and I sort of came up with a list. We had to decide who we wanted to feature. We we came up with, as it turned out, 17 profiles. We interviewed them um, by phone. We each you know, had our own group that we ended up uh, doing. So I would get these people on the phone. I'd talk to them. And uh, usually two or three times for upwards of an hour. Some we met uh, in person, but most were on the phone. Uh, then we'd have transcripts made. And then look at the transcripts and, and construct an idea of how we would tell their story through their words. Uh, and, and then it was basically like a jigsaw puzzle, kind of lifting off the quotes that we liked out of the uh, uh, transcript and then finding a way to uh, draw a path through their story and uh, adding our own words but in their voice. Hmm. Tell me about Cindy Blackstock's story. 
Cindy Blackstock's an amazing person. You know, some Canadians, some of your listeners have probably heard of her, uh, probably seen her on television, maybe heard her on the radio. Uh, she's a, an activist on Indigenous affairs, especially as they, rate to, uh, as they relate to kids. She's based in Ottawa. Um, I'd interviewed her, I guess, about five or six years ago when, when she helped win a big court case on behalf of Indigenous children. And uh, I was really Im- impressed with her, and I always, in the back of my mind, said, you know, someday I want to talk to her more about her own background to understand sort of where she came from, what her story is. And so when I got this book, she was one of the first people I thought of. And so I called her up and, and, and then spent a number of hours talking to her on the phone. She lives in Ottawa now, but she grew up in B.C. And when I heard her story, I mean, you know, great stories are usually based on, on moments, particular moments, and, they, and you sort of draw a, a pathway through uh, telling by telling those moments. So... When we talked, she told me about her early childhood, which was in the interior of British Columbia. Um, and she was um, the daughter of an indigenous father and a non-indigenous mother. Now, that's not that unusual. It's happened in, you know, in many circumstances in many parts of the country, especially in Western Canada. Um, but what she discovered as a kid when she was like three, four, or five years old, her earliest memories were if she was out with just one of her parents as opposed to both of them, if she was just out with one, she was treated very differently by the public, by, you know, restaurants, by stores. If she was with her mother, who was non-Indigenous, then she was treated if she was with her father, who was Indigenous. And you can tell from that story this sense that, you know, of kind of white privilege on the part of her mother's side versus you're an Indian on her father's side. The genesis of her story in many ways, uh, because you can draw, uh, you know, a thread from that story right through to the work she's doing now in trying to uh, help Indigenous kids who, as far as she's concerned, are not treated uh, equally to non-Indigenous kids. Um so there's a lot more to Cindy's story, but that's kind of the beginning of it. That's what kind of starts you off on this journey with her and the things she's seen and the things she's done. And speaking of journeys, Levon Johnson. Mm-hmm. Levon Johnson is a member of Canada's elite commando unit. It's called JTF-2. Um, we don't know much about JTF-2 because the armed forces hasn't told Canadians very much. In fact, I've talked to former prime ministers uh, who have said to me, when I tried to find out something about their missions, I couldn't get through to them. I couldn't find out. They're very secretive. I'd been to Afghanistan a number of times during that conflict. I'd seen JTF-2 personnel, but I couldn't get anywhere near them. And if you're wondering sort of like, well, who are these guys? Well, you've probably seen, you know, American movies celebrating SEAL Team 6 or British movies celebrating the the SAS. Um, That's who these guys are. That's who JTF2 is. But we don't talk about them. I spent 20 years, believe it or not, trying to break through with the leaders in the armed forces to allow me to spend some time with that unit. And finally, in the last couple of years, they agreed under certain conditions, and one of them was I couldn't reveal the actual names of anybody I talked to in there. So Levon Johnson is a pseudonym, 
but he's a real guy. <laughs> he was a commando, and he tells the story of a particular mission in Afghanistan, which in many ways was kind of a payback mission. They were after a number of Taliban bomb makers, the kind of uh, people who had been blowing up Canadian vehicles and killing Canadian soldiers. Most of the Canadians who died in Afghanistan died not in a, a conflict battle, but in by roadside bombs. Uh, so that this in detail is that mission, and it's quite riveting, and it's it's the same in many ways as the Cindy Blackstock story and all the other stories in this book. It talks about determination and courage and resilience fighting a particular issue. In this case, it was a war. And Peter Mansbridge, you know, the world is in an awful state right now, brought to its knees by COVID-19. So did you feel that now was the time for us to hear these amazing stories of strength and courage shown by extraordinary Canadians from coast to coast to coast? Well, as it turned out, it's exactly uh, why this book is, you know, is gaining a lot of interest right now. Uh, when we started on this book, it was a year ago. It was the summer of 2019. There was no pandemic, and you know, you could barely spell the word, let alone understand what it would mean if we ever were hit by one. Now we're in the middle of one, and one of the things we need is inspiration. And most of the people in this book were up against some real hardship. It could be, you know, a personal. Injury, it could be uh, some form of disease, it could be a conflict like the Levon Johnson one, it could be up against racism as we saw with Cindy Blackstock's story and the many others. But they all had that determination that they could deal with it, you know, that resilience, that courage. Uh, and, you know, for a lot of people right now, stories like that are coming just at the right time. Uh, we're in for another uh, difficult uh, stretch here now through this winter. Um, you mentioned the vaccines and, and, and the hope um, that they may bring, but it, it's not like they're around the corner. They're still some distance between us and them. So we have a ways to go, and there are going to be difficulties during that way. And uh, stories like this will help us uh, deal with the difficulties that lie ahead. And the people that you write about and that you speak about and that are in the book, they lead by example, as do you, Peter Mansbridge. Extraordinary Canadian stories from the heart of our nation. Thank you, Peter, for joining us on the feed. Thank you, Anne. It's always a treat to talk to you. Mm -hmm. When we come back, the good work of Giving Tuesday. This is the feed on 105.9 The Region. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. Natalie Wilson has been a child life specialist at the Hospital for Sick Children since 2014, but her sick kids journey actually began 25 years ago when she was diagnosed with childhood leukemia and was treated at the world-famous Children's Hospital in Toronto. 
That experience left an indelible mark on Natalie's life. She decided to devote herself to helping young patients facing the same challenges she did when she was so very ill. Natalie Wilson is determined to give patients back their childhood. Her incredible story of courage and compassion brings us now to Sick Kids Giving Tuesday. Natalie Wilson is our guest today on The Feed. Thank you for joining us, Natalie. Oh, thank you for having me. So what is a child life specialist? We are experts in the developmental impact of illness, injury, and trauma. And we provide interventions that meet a child's age and development when they're at the hospital to reduce fear and anxiety and pain to uh, really keep childhood at the forefront of their hospital journeys. And it's an essential role because childhood is essential. And so in order for kids to overcome their hospital experiences and not have um, um, some long-lasting effects that we know can happen when kids are getting the best medical care. Um, we use play as a tool to help um, normalize their environment by giving, bringing play to the bedside, by explaining um, scary medical information into words that they can understand, by preparing them for tests or procedures so that they know how to cope better, and um, and overall supporting their their hospital experience from the social-emotional part so that they um, have a better experience and make it, um, we make the hospital um, an easier place to be for them while they're there. So what in your past and in your experience as a childhood cancer survivor, what, what helps you relate to the children today? Yeah, well, when I, I was diagnosed at SickKids 25 years ago with childhood leukemia, and, um, and so it gives me a perspective of um, fear and anxiety that I felt at that point in time, and um, although every family's journey is individual and specific to them, it always um, gives me that reminder of um, why I love what I do, to be able to um, hopefully make um, every family's um, experience that I work with a little bit more positive um, and help them cope a little bit better. You know, you brought up a key word, and that's family. You're, you're helping the most medically fragile young patients in the pediatrics ward, but you're also helping their parents because through extension and through the love that they have for their children and the, the fear for their future, they need help as well. Is, is that something that is part of your role as a child life specialist? It is. We know that um, that everyone um, within a family is affected when a child is sick or they have to be at the hospital, and we know that um, that stress can transfer. And so, when we're supporting um, a child, we're also then supporting the family members and vice versa. When parents feel supported, when they feel like they can take a break because their child is in good hands um, through play or through an activity, um, we're helping them care for themselves um, so that they feel more empowered to be able to, to care for their child. And a lot of times we're helping them advocate for things that they might not know about um, that then improve their experience as well. And by um, kids coping better, by them being able to um, have opportunities to be kids, to laugh mm -hmm. and to play and to celebrate things like um, losing their first tooth or, um, or celebrating a birthday, that is adding to the whole family's quality of life. But, and that's going to 
make the family as a whole be able to cope better. Natalie, what do you think about as you walk through the doors every day? How do you prepare yourself for what will be presented to you each and every day? Well, every day is different in our role, and um, and to me, it always feels like a privilege walking through the doors of sick kids um, to be able to be working with the most inspiring children and families that I get to meet every day or get to get to know over a period of years. And to me, it's always motivating when I'm working with those families to see their stress level to go down, to see them feel accomplished with overcoming a scary experience. Um, or to um, to just see them be have opportunities to be kids, to see that transformation in a child that um, and to be able to be a small part of their hospital journey to me um, is always inspiring. And in terms of our our everyday roles, it's always different because um, some days um, I might be doing. Um, some memory making activities with a patient who is at the end of their life with their so that their family has something uh, to remember that child by and in the afternoon, I might be working at the bedside with a patient making slime to um, to build that trust with that child so that they know that they can trust me and I can be there for them for the harder stuff so I always, I always think of it as a privilege every time I walk through those doors to um, have those um, truly therapeutic relationships with those families and um, to be able to try every day to, um, to add to their experiences and make it a little bit more positive. Was there someone like you when you were battling cancer 25 years ago? Was there a child life specialist? I know that your mother, when you were fighting cancer she was being treated for cancer at the same time in fact she said to you someday we should tell our story was there someone helping you through this a quarter of a century ago Mm-hmm. The child life role over the past 25 years has evolved a lot into a more clinical role, but there was um, a child life specialist. Her name uh, is Jennifer Butterly, who now is um, a professor um, at McMaster University um, teaching the future child life specialist. But I will always remember her as someone who um, always gave me those opportunities to be a child, whether it's through activities or Seeing, for example, what um, what my port was going to look at, like, which was a medical device that I needed for my chemo treatments. Um, so I will I will always remember her, and she's really the the reason that I knew about the child life field because it is a relatively smaller field, um, and really what inspired me um, to be able to um, have that goal to want to go on to be a child life specialist. You're telling us your story now. Would your mom be proud if she were here today? I think she would. Um, I was I was diagnosed um, in October of um, of that year, 25 years ago, and I had my first dose of chemo um, on one day, and my mom had her last um, dose of oral chemo um, the day before. And then sick kids really met us where we were at. So um, we had group, we had joint radiation appointments together so that um, it was one less thing to have to coordinate, which the kids helped us with. We, um, we went through that journey together. And um, unfortunately, about halfway through my treatment, uh, my mom's cancer returned. So we were once again on uh, chemo together. 
and it was something that really bonded us. And um, through my three years of treatment, I had a lot of complications, a lot of admissions um, where I learned, had to learn to eat again. I had to learn to walk again. And part of my rehab was um, during the evenings when the hospital was quiet, uh, my mom and I would walk to the benches by a big set of windows as my walking goal, and we would just sit there and reflect. And, um, and I, I remember one time specifically uh, my mom saying that, you know, sometime we have to tell our story um, of this mother and daughter fighting cancer together. And, um, and so today, talking to you, I feel very privileged to be able to, to, um, to share that story with you. And we are so, so honored and privileged to hear your story. And I know your mom is proud as she's looking down on you right now and sending her love. Let's Talk about Sick Kids Giving Tuesday coming up on December the 1st and your role in all of this. What does Sick Kids Giving Tuesday mean to you, Natalie? Um, it means quite a lot because this year, more than ever, Sick Kids is working harder, more, harder than ever to support families who are in extra stressful situations. With the pandemic, there are a lot, of, a lot more separated families. There are more families in isolation. They're dealing with a lot more stress. And so um, funds raised from this year's Giving Tuesday will go towards things like the Child Life Program, so that we can give childhood back to more kids. Because right now is a time when kids need childhood more than ever. So kids, that means kids in the hospital need child life more than ever to have those moments um, to be a kid as well as to be prepared and to be able to cope well through our support. And, um, and of course, it means that funds will go towards building a new hospital without limits um, in caring for children and their families. Um, we know that um, by having um, continued research, by having um, space where kids and families have more privacy, have more places to heal and grow and just be a family um, and initiatives to, to improve child health overall that, um, that we will be able to do more for our families and get them through more. What do you say to our listeners and our followers right now about Giving Tuesday, about Sick Kids Giving Tuesday? You know, it takes place annually after the globally recognized Black Friday and Cyber Monday, and some consider it the opening day of giving season. I personally think it should be 365 days of the year. But why in particular, what do you say to our listeners about why they should give to Sick Kids Giving Tuesday? Yeah, I would say that um, it's just the perfect opportunity. Again, the hospital right now, we're supporting families under more stress than they've ever been. And by um, by donating to such a worthy cause at a time when, um, especially when there is extra stress in the world and a lot of negativity in the world, it's such a positive, uplifting thing that can be done. And regardless of the size of the donation, um, it will make that world of difference um, to, um, to support more kids and families gives them more opportunities for families to be together and, um, and of course, to continue um, building a bigger and better for kids. And you would know you're on the front lines. I consider you an earth angel. Natalie, tell me if, if someone wants to be a donor on Giving Tuesday or really any time when it comes to sick kids, where do they go? 
Mm-hmm. We have a website set up, and you can access that website at uh, sickkidsgive.com. And um, that will have all the information on how, um, on all different ways that you can become either a one-time donor or um, or a monthly donor um, to continue uh, supporting uh, the work that's done at SickKids to uh, to give back to families. Natalie, thank you for trying so hard each and every day to give patients back their childhood. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us, and thank you so much for what you do, Natalie. It's my absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, the financial stress Canadians are feeling is greater now than ever. Tina Cortez with How Expert Advice Can Help Ease Anxiety. Brett Marchand is Head of Retirement Canada at Manulife. Thank you for joining us on the feed, Brett. Thanks very much for having me, Tina. Now, before we get to the survey, tell us about your role and your work at Manulife. For sure, Tina. Yeah. So I head up Manulife Investment Management's uh, Canada retirement business. We are fortunate to work with approximately 12,000 employers of uh, all industries and all employer sizes, and we support about 2 million Canadians um, in their planning after the retirement through financial wellness programs and uh, uh, administer products like defined contribution pension plans, group RSPs, and group TFSAs. All right. So now recently, Manulife conducted a survey that shows nearly half of working Canadians are in worse financial shape due to the pandemic. I don't think any of us would be surprised by those results. Were you? No, not at all. In fact, our 2020 survey showed us that plan members' financial stress has been exasperated by the COVID-19 pandemic. And they're worried about both their personal finances and the broader economy and its future growth. There is some good news, though. Um, Workers are much more receptive than ever to getting help managing their finances and seeking personalized guidance and advice in retirement planning and investing. Uh, 58% of respondents in Canada are willing to seek professional advice on retirement planning, which is a really great sign. That is for sure. It almost feels encouraging when you hear something like that. So what can our listeners do? What can investors do to get back on track? Yeah, it's a really great great question, Tina. Now, there's no one-size-fits-all solution when it comes to financial planning. Some people find themselves with more cash on hand these days. Um, At the same time, Uh, Many others are dipping into their savings just to make ends meet. So there's no single piece of wisdom that addresses every situation. As new information becomes available and the market steadies itself, best practices will present themselves and people on the financial front line, uh, advisors, will be able to offer best courses of action to um, um, Canadians. What we do know is Canadians who work with an advisor realize 3.9 times the savings after 15 years that, than those that go it alone. Uh, that's according to a 2016 uh, survey conducted by Serrano. Um, seeking assistance with making a budget, paying down debt, and financial goal setting is a great first step to getting back on track. Those are good tips for sure. What about employers? What should they be doing? For sure. Um, respondents were very much in agreement that um, financial wellness programs offered by employers have had either a great deal of impact or some impact. In fact, 93% of uh, Canadian plan members feel it's important for employers to offer financial wellness programs. 
So from an employer perspective, I would offer that there's no better time for companies to encourage their plan members to use the educational resources available to them within their group plans. During these times, it's more important than ever to provide access to advice, um, and, and so that's like making services like our Canadian Retirement Plan Right Advisory Service or other financial wellness programs available as, as these programs can offer big benefits to employees. Um, our survey also uh, showed that these programs can have a cascading effect on reducing financial stress, which leads to increased job productivity, improved employee retention, and also uh, assist in the recruiting challenges and, and, and um, helping to support employers in attracting top talent. Uh, employers who provide comprehensive tools to support financial wellness from savings, debt management, and asset protection and tools to education support um, can help employees improve their retirement readiness. Plus, uh, I'd say a holistic plan that embraces financial wellness alongside the physical and mental well-being can um, really deliver a happier and, and more productive um, workplace. And what about, you know, as you said, we're in the midst of this pandemic. The numbers are increasing all over the world, right here at home. What's your one final piece of advice for those who are worried about job security and yet they still want to plan for retirement? What can they do? Yeah, so it was a, a huge relief uh, to see in the survey results that plan members are still consistently contributing to their retirement plans. This is a really good indicator that despite the impact of the pandemic, uh, which is still an unknown over the longer term, that retirement savers are still motivated by their personal retirement goals and believe in the concept of dollar cost averaging. It is important um, to work with an advisor. They are experts and they're um, uh, tuned into the markets and how to help members maximize returns. It's also um, uh, just as important for um, you know, Canadians to be engaged, uh, whether that's knowing when you need advice or whether uh, you know, you're developing a, a plan or a budget. Deciding to be engaged in your financial future is what a, one of the key mindsets. Um, there's a really strong connection um, uh, between financial wellness and retirement readiness. And where can our listeners get more information about the survey, about Manulife, about your work? Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, for more information uh, on, on Manulife or uh, on our survey, um, they just need to visit uh, manulife.ca and search for the financial stress survey. That's terrific. Brett Marchand is head of retirement at Manulife. Thank you for your time and your advice. Thank you, Tina. Jack Nathan Health is taking medical care to a whole new level, an innovative concept with state-of-the-art equipment and some of the best doctors and practitioners in this country. Canadian-owned and operated and now in partnership with Walmart Canada, Jack Nathan Health endeavors to give patients more convenient access to quality health care services within their local communities, never more essential and incredibly important than right now. Joining us on the feed is the CEO and co-founder of Jack Nathan Health, George Barakat. Thank you so much for being with us, George. Thanks for having me, and It's truly a pleasure. So what is the concept of Jack Nathan Health Incorporated. Tell me what the image and the vision is. 
Well, Jack Nathan Health, um, uh, together with Walmart, uh, what we want to provide is convenient access to healthcare, convenient access to doctors. Uh, by bringing the uh, clinic to the patients, what we find is we find that everybody is trying to do more with less time. So we have created these state-of-the-art medical facilities with some of the best doctors in Canada and provide uh, family health care as well as walk-in medicine and uh, co-locate ancillary services around our, enchi- our entire health care vertical. So what services do you offer? Oh, great question. Uh, some of our clinics um, offer more than just uh, family medicine and walk-in. We have uh, in, in our newest location, Thornhill, uh, which is at 700 Center Street. We have uh, walk-in family medicine, pediatrician, physiotherapy, chiropody, uh, and the list goes on. I think we're going to be adding med spa soon to it as well. So does someone need a referral from their own family physician in order to access some of the services that you offer? Uh, it really depends um, on the service. So most services do require referral. Uh, from the family physician or the walk-in physician. For example, if you needed to see a physio uh, therapist and it was recommended that you had circulation uh, problems, a family physician or a physician may refer you over to the chiropodist and uh, from there you could get fitted for a new set of orthotics or see the physiotherapist. Uh, definitely in some of our other locations that have full labs, uh, you would need a requisition from the physician. Uh, as as well as maybe chronic pain management or, or various other ancillary services. And where does OHIP come in with all of this? Well, all of our uh, clinics are uh, serviced by physicians that practice under OHIP. So that means that there will be nothing necessarily out of pocket for the patient coming into the clinic? No. It, to do with primary care, there usually isn't. Now, if you have... Uh, third-party insurance or insurance through your um, work, uh, you may be uh, needing to use that for physiotherapy or massage therapy or any ancillary service requirements. Uh, concurrently, if your requisition is for a lab, a uh, blood lab, or a diagnostic, uh, those are all covered by OHIP. So walk me through this. Your clinics are housed within Walmarts. Uh, really from coast to coast at this point. You have a new medical clinic in Thornhill. How does that work? I, as a customer of Walmart, might walk in and do some shopping and then would come and visit you. Would I need an appointment? How does that work? Oh, absolutely. No, you wouldn't need an appointment. Uh, All of our clinics accept walk-in patients. Uh, You can register with the physicians to become or for that physician to become your family physician if there is space. Uh, however, uh, every one of our clinics do accept walk-in uh, appointments. And what that means is that you could uh, literally be shopping in a Walmart or doing your groceries or, um, you know, shopping with a loved one, a family member, or your child, and uh, you can do more with less time, almost a one-stop shop by adding a family physician and the ability to see a doctor on premise, essentially bringing the clinic to the patients. We really uh, strive to be more patient-focused and to accommodate uh, citizens today 
so that they can do more with less time. You obviously saw a need for this. Uh, When and why did all of this come about? And who is Jack Nathan? (laughs) When and why? (laughs) So this came about in 2004 when we first proposed this to uh, Walmart. Uh, We opened our first two clinics, actually, in 2006 uh, in Scarborough and Burlington. Uh, From there, we... Uh, proceeded to open up uh, quite a few clinics every year. We now have 76 clinics in six provinces and uh, currently six in Mexico. Let's talk about in our own backyard and Walmart Canada. That partnership obviously is something that's very important. Why did you approach Walmart? Uh, We just looked at the healthcare landscape and said, you know, by bringing the clinic to the patients instead of the patients always looking for their medical clinic, we said, where are we going to realize the most foot traffic um, short of a uh, airport? And it all came, it all pointed back to we need to align this with the retailers because, you know, everybody has to do, has to uh, purchase goods, groceries, shopping, uh, your always providing necessities and essentials for your families. Uh, so it just made perfect sense to co-locate a medical center within a department store and specifically within Walmart. Again, it goes back to uh, bringing the clinic to the patient, and the evolution of that is what we call today completing the circle of healthcare, and that's by co-locating not just the family physician or walk-in. That's now providing much more depth and much more breadth of service offerings through ancillary services like specialist services, as as we mentioned. Big box stores like Walmart are remaining open through this pandemic, at least in Ontario. Is that helpful when it comes to keeping your clinics going? Absolutely. I mean, big box stores are uh, been deemed essential service because of the grocery component and, and um, items and needs. Uh, medical definitely is an essential service. Uh, by keeping the doors open, uh, we also um, are contributing and helping out with uh, patients' needs, customer needs, and uh, let's face it, whether it's the time and place we are today or not, everybody is at some point going to get sick or going to need a physician. Um, it really is a, a good partnership uh, between Walmart and Jack Nathan Health. Uh, we're providing healthcare services in in the retailer that probably sees the entire population of Canada within their stores every 30 days. Uh, so to say that we are uh, an essential service, uh, more importantly a convenience, is, uh, is understated. With all due respect, how can you afford the equipment necessary, state-of-the-art, and the doctors who are the best in the country, how can you afford to uh, staff and equip each of the clinics with such great equipment? Well, the, the equipment that you're referring to, the doctor's equipment with regards to beds and, and um, equipment they use is, is pretty standard across, um, across the landscape for family physicians and, uh, and physicians in general. Really, I, I think it's more of the quality of the physicians that are in the space that we have today, and they get it, right? They understand that, um, you know, providing a great medical services is the most important. It's key. We pride ourselves on uh, 
on uh, really, again, that continuum, that circle of healthcare. How can we provide more service to the consumers, to the patients? Um, you know, in the past, when you look at the uh, standard medical building, you would go in and see a doctor and come back and uh, see a specialist, and it could take weeks, sometimes months. Uh, we want to shorten the gap. So when you see a doctor, you will definitely be able to see a specialist, especially if they're on site at a Jack Nathan Center instantly, same day, same day referrals. My experience with medical clinics and sometimes walk-in clinics, not really all that positive in the past. And it's my own experience where there have been long lineups and dreary atmosphere and uh just not feeling as enthusiastic about the healthcare system as one should be. How do you see Jack Nathan as different from that kind of experience? Well, Anne, you should come to a Jack Nathan clinic. <laughs> um, you can come right in. Well, if you don't want to wait in the waiting room, we can hand you a paddle pager and uh, page you when it's five minutes uh, before uh, your turn to see the doctor. Um, that's one of the little you know, low-tech devices that we've had from inception, actually. It's equivalent to um, what you'd see at a restaurant, a restaurant pager. And it's very effective, very efficient. Um, you walk through the door, obviously, bright spaces, uh, a very well-appointed, uh, good waiting rooms. Uh, but more importantly is uh, the quality of our physicians. Jack Nathan Health is definitely on my radar now, but you didn't answer the question I asked you a few moments ago. Who is Jack Nathan? So Jack Nathan is my son. And uh, at the time, uh, we thought it was a very good uh, name for a uh, medical clinic. And uh, it's not just lasted the test of time. It's really uh, sustained that quality. So, um, uh, you know, coincidentally... When we started the business, that was the year my son was born. So your newest clinic is in Thornhill, housed within Walmart. You definitely are on our radar, Jack Nathan Health. Thank you for joining us, George Barakat, the CEO and co-founder of Jack Nathan Health. It's my pleasure, and thank you for having me. After the break, what travel will look like in 2021, this is the feed on 105.9 The Region. Follow us on Twitter at 105.9 The Region. Ann Romer, and more of the feed after the break. This is 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. After a year like this one, it's not hard to imagine why so many people just want to escape. Jim Lang now with the travel trends for the year ahead. All right, as, as 2020 comes to a close and we look ahead to 2021 with hope and promise and good vibes and good energy and the thought of a vaccine, then our thoughts turn to getting back to traveling. We are born to travel and see things, and what more perfect way to do it with our great friends at Expedia. And thrilled to be joined by Mary Zajak, the public relations manager at Expedia, something our family knows very well. We've booked many a trip with Expedia, Mary, and it's great to be talking to you. Great to be talking to you too, Jim. Uh, I guess for a lot of people, as they look into 2021, they're like, okay, I've had enough of the pandemic shutdown and being close to home, and they're looking ahead to travel. What will travel in the new normal be like in 2021 for people making plans through Expedia? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I think that travel has changed a lot in the past year, and I think as we look ahead to 2021, um, there will be some new themes and, and aspects that emerge in the travel space carrying over from 2020, right? Of course, we're optimistic and we hope that 
that things will change as we go forward. But I do think that, especially in, this, in the first start of the year, there will be some similar themes that we carry over from 2020. So a few of those um, to speak to and how Canadians can think about, you know, when they're thinking about traveling, when it is safe to do so, right? Um, we know that situation is really different depending on where you are across the country. Um, but flexibility is really important, right? Being able to change your plan if something comes up or um, if you need to um, make any adjustments. The second is really health and safety. So this is essential. We see this in our day-to-day lives, whether we're going to the supermarket or anywhere really, right? This is an uh, essential element that we have now built into our day-to-day. So that will be something that carries forward in travel as well. Shorter booking windows is something we've seen this year and something expected to carry into 2021 as well. So people are really watching things and then making those plans as they go. Um, And we know things can change really quickly. So this is um, another theme that we see come out. And then finally, I would say the biggest um, thing when it comes to accommodations is, yes, hotels are really popular. They have been in 2019, continue to be in 2020. But we also see this growth in alternative accommodations. So this, these are the private vacation homes, cottages, glamping experiences that people are showing greater interest in as well. Before we get, uh, I want to get back to the cottages and cabins for a second, Mary, but the one thing you mentioned is shorter booking sure. window, and I think we need to just educate people on that. I know my wife and I, when we book travel, we like to book a couple months ahead and really be prepared, but for people who do want to travel, that window, you may have, what, seven to ten days really to go to Expedia, book your trip, and be ready to go. Am I correct? Yeah, that is a theme that we have seen throughout the year, that the booking window has really shortened. And I think that's really reflective of the current environment that we're in, right? That we've never really been in this position before um, as Canadians or citizens of the world. And so I think that is very much reflective of our current landscape. I would agree. I know this past summer, um, my wife and I, we have, a, we have a family cottage in northern Ontario. And driving around, we were stunned. Every mini motel, hotel, uh, cabin it was jammed. And it seems like Canada, people have rediscovered their own country and are traveling in their own country a lot more. I, I think that's very safe to say. I think there's two things there. So first, I, I think people want to get out of the city, right? People are looking for places that are a bit more remote, have more space to spread out practice social distancing, right? And areas in northern Ontario are a great spot for that, right? Um, driving just outside of the city um, of Toronto, we get we have a lot of access to uh, places that have a bit more space, right, than if you were right in the downtown core. Um, and then I think, yeah, this whole theme of really exploring our own backyard is something that has been very prevalent this summer. I'd even take that a step further and say exploring our own provinces. Really, I in in... Past past years, you think back to, you know, we're exploring different parts of the world, Europe, the U.S. This year, it's very much, look at all these great things that we can actually do and explore close to home. And how, I, I would imagine. I know, I, I know, I've discovered quite a few neat areas that I've never been to, but have had the chance to in uh, being close to home this summer. Absolutely, Mary. And I would think that to carry over into this winter, a scheme within Canada, whether it's in Quebec or in Ontario or out west, will be popular for Canadians as well. I think that I think that's a really interesting theme, and I do believe that's something that we'll see. Of course, watching the situation closely, right, how things evolve in the coming months. But I definitely think that the skiing and being in the outdoors, experiencing winter at home, is probably not something a lot of us are, are used to, right? People look for that warm reprieve to head down south. 
But I, I think it's really about learning how to experience winter differently at home. So you mentioned skiing. Skiing is great, and I'm a skier, and I, I, I'm looking forward to doing that this year. But I think if you're not a skier, there are other options, right, like to get outside, whether it's snowshoeing or just bundling up and going for a walk and seeing somewhere new. Yeah, I agree. Now, the flip side of that is I have some friends and family who, no matter what, they get to about early January, post-Christmas, New Year, and they're like, I have to go somewhere down south for at least a week to warm up. And no matter what, people in Canada endure winter, and a lot of them endure it by going somewhere warm. Is that still something that Expedia is finding, that a lot of Canadians will be looking at somewhere like a Cancun or or wherever, somewhere warm, to just, to, just to get a break? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a good question. I think the answer is we're not really sure at this point. We'll have to, you know, follow and see how the restrictions are, are in place and how the cases go. Um, I, from our data, we are seeing that people are looking in, for 2021 to go have a warm reprieve. And our search data for 2021 is really showing that places in the Caribbean, Mexico, Florida, Hawaii, all of these popular warm beach destinations are really on top of people, on the top of people's minds. So when they are able and safe to do so to get away, that seems like a good option. Another thing that we're thinking about, or Canadians can be thinking about, where to get warm reprieve. Again, with the with the context that once it's safe and able, you are able to travel. Of course, within Canada, there are areas that perhaps are a bit have milder or temperate climate, so such as Vancouver Island, right? Mm. That has a bit of a warmer spot, right? A warmer domestic spot than say if you were in Toronto. I'll just use that as a reference. I wonder how many people will be looking at booking a winterized cottage or cabin in northern Ontario who maybe don't want to ski but want to get away. They can experience winter but cozy by the wood-burning stove, you know, like a hot chocolate. Yeah, I mean, I think I'll be really interested to kind of to watch that trend and see what happens. I think, I think the idea of getting a change of scenery and doing so safely is something that a lot of people are thinking about, right? And even if that's for a night, right, or a day, or you're just sort of relocating a bit, um, just to... Just to break it up, break break your time up a bit. Uh, the one thing I, I guess, uh, 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 like a lot of Canadians, I'm not aware of, Mary, is what about cancellation policies? I'm so used to pre-COVID, what went into it if they had to do some cancellation. Has it changed that much now we're living in COVID? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, um, so I can speak to specifically on the Expedia site, a lot of our properties that you're booking right now have... Um, uh, cancellation be uh, sorry cancellation options and so you can easily refund things prior to leaving so you have that flexibility right um, from from an airline perspective if that's something Canadians are looking to do a lot of airlines from what I've read have implemented you know the no the no change fees and things like that so those are those are ways that the travel industry has adapted in this space to be more flexible for travelers right and understanding the landscape. So, yes, I would say the flexibility is definitely something that has been incorporated more as the environment has changed. Speaking with Mary Zajak, the public relations manager at Expedia. And, Mary, I have to tell you, during the pandemic, my wife and I have obviously had more time at home. And looking ahead to post-pandemic, we have gone into the Expedia rabbit hole too many times to mention thinking about future <laughs> trips. Hey, when, we, when this is over, we'll go here and then we'll go there. I feel the same way. I'm really excited to get back out there and travel once once we can again. 
Mary, thank you so much for enlightening us and educating us and my listeners and myself about travel through Expedia. As always, Expedia, getting all your information that you need. Check them out, Expedia.ca. Uh, this will end. We'll get back to travel, and Expedia will be a friend, and we'll be better for it. Thank you, Mary. That's right. Thanks, Jim. Bye. Bye-bye. Every year, thousands of Canadian snowbirds head south for the winter. Afwa with the change of plans. What will Canadian snowbirds be doing this holiday season? Will they be staying in Canada or will they take the risk and still head south of the border? So joining me today with all of those answers is uh, Evan Rakowski, Director of Research and Communications at Canadian Snowbird Association. Evan, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me on. It's our pleasure. Okay, so let's, uh, let's know, are the snowbirds traveling this year for this winter in particular? So in terms of our membership, uh, we really are receiving mixed messages from our membership. Uh, some are committed to going. You know, that, that's definitely a smaller proportion of our membership. Uh, the vast majority have decided not to go, obviously, with the surging uh, cases of COVID, both in Canada and the U.S. Uh, they've made a determination not to travel. It's not worth the risk this season. So this snowbird season is essentially a write-off for them. And then there's another group of our members where essentially they're waiting to see what happens in regards to the restrictions at the land border, uh, how COVID case numbers are going to look in the new year. And they may still plan on, on making a trip down south, but again, it, a lot of it's going to uh, depend on what the COVID case numbers look like and whether or not those restrictions at the land border are still in place. All right. And then so getting into that, then you just mentioned that a small percentage will be still traveling. If they're traveling, how exactly will they be doing this? So the, the only way Canadians can currently travel to the U.S. is by air. So we've heard from members on a variety of ways that basically they, they've taken how they typically go to the U.S. And again, 70 percent of our members generally use their Canadian vehicles to travel from Canada to the U.S. And they've had to make alternative arrangements. So some of them are you know, taking planes to border states and having their vehicles shipped uh, to that border state and then driving to their winter destination, either Florida or Arizona or California. Uh, some are just going to be flying down south uh, to Florida where they might have a U.S. vehicle. And we've heard of even some cases of people taking helicopters uh, from Canada into the U.S. and then having their vehicles uh, shipped down to border states as well, where then they'll use those uh, vehicles to travel down south. Okay, so hearing that there are a couple of options available for snowbirds um, if they still want to head uh, down south for the holiday season, hearing about some transport companies that will also are finding different ways to help transport Canadians uh, over the border, even those who have RVs and can't necessarily drive it through the border this year. Yeah, there, there are a number of companies that are offering that, uh, different transport companies, either through helicopters and, and they'll basically mix helicopter rides with uh, auto transport. You know, you, you bring up RVers and, and that's uh, a smaller proportion of our membership, but the issue with them, of course, is the, the land border is currently closed and they generally spend, if you're talking about full-time RVers, six months in Canada and six months in the U.S., so a lot of the parks that they currently reside at in Canada are closing if they haven't already closed. So now they're trying to make alternative arrangements to try to get down south with those RVs that they, again, typically live in and spend up to six months in the U.S. And for the percentage that is staying home for this holiday season, what exactly will they be doing? Yeah, so, so most of them are, are just going to be staying at their properties in Canada 
for a lot of these people, they haven't experienced the Canadian winter in 10, 20, or, or even 30 years. So a lot of it is basically reacclimatizing themselves. A lot of them don't have winter clothing, so it's purchasing winter clothing and boots, uh, purchasing uh, winter tires on their vehicles. Uh, there's a lot of things that, again, they're going to have to get reaccustomed to at, at this time, but they're going through those steps and making the necessary arrangements in order to get reaccustomed to Canadian winters. And I'm guessing that you're hearing from your members that that's some of the biggest concerns that snowbirds have for this particular season, especially with the pandemic in the mix, too? Yeah, I mean, COVID-19 is absolutely the number one concern for them. And just because now they're, they're monitoring the, the rising and the surging uh, cases of COVID-19 stateside, more and more of them are now, you know, those that were planning to go down south are now choosing just to stay at home and, and not risk actually contracting the virus. And so let's talk about south of the border right now. What is, uh, for those who travel to Florida, what is the state of Florida's stance on snowboards this particular year? Are they still being welcomed? So they, they are being welcomed. Uh, obviously, you know, health and safety have to be the number one priority. Uh, they're being welcomed, but obviously in a, in a very limited fashion. Uh, just simply because, again, they have surging COVID case numbers. The hospitalization and ICU rates are also climbing in Florida and other Sunbelt states. Uh, so obviously health and safety have to be a priority for people. And we're always reminding our members and, and people from the general public that it is necessary to purchase travel medical insurance, you know, regardless of whether or not you're traveling in the midst of a pandemic. But especially now, you have to ensure that you are covered with COVID-19 coverage. And you also have to make sure that those levels of coverage in regards to COVID-19, are sufficient for travel to the U.S. You and I are on the same wavelength right now. I was just about to ask you about insurance policies. For those who are still interested in, in traveling, what type of insurance policies are still available? Because a lot of uh, insurance companies have either amended or canceled some of their policies altogether for those who are traveling to the States. That, that's absolutely true. So we are noticing that there are a growing number of companies that are providing COVID-19 coverage. The issue is more and more of these companies are placing caps on COVID-19 coverage. So even though the overall health benefit of the policy might be worth 2 or $5 million, they have provisions within the text of the policy that effectively limit the amount of money that they're going to pay out for COVID-related claims to, let's say, $200,000 Canadian. Now, if you're traveling with $200,000 worth of coverage for COVID-19 in the U.S., that absolutely will not cover it. That, that kind of coverage is completely insufficient. They would need to purchase a travel insurance product that provides coverage, which would equal that 2 to $5 million coverage and not place caps on anything COVID-19 related. Okay, and then on that note, then your final tips uh, for snowbirds, whether they're planning to hunker down here or still saying, you know what, they're going to bite the bullet and still head over to the States. Well, aside from the, the travel health insurance for people that are actually choosing to travel down south, uh, number one would be to follow the health and safety protocols regardless of where you are. So most of these protocols are very similar in both Canada and the U.S., but they would also need to ensure that they do adhere to the quarantine requirements as well. When snowbirds do return home, Canada still does have a 14-day quarantine requirement where they do need to uh, stay at home and have groceries delivered. And again, for that 14 days that they return home to Canada, not leave their home and and stay quarantined uh, for the duration of the 14 days. That is great, perfect, wise words of wisdom for Canadian snowbirds. Okay, joining me to chat today about uh, Canadian snowbirds and if they'll be traveling or if they're going to be staying in Canada for the holiday season, I've been speaking with Evan Rakowski, Director of Research and Communications at Canadian Snowbird Association. Thank you again for your time today. 
Thank you so much. So if you missed any part of our show, go to 1059theregion.com or follow us on Twitter at 1059theregion. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.